You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hang on while I throw this switch... There, now I can see what I'm doing. That small bulb casts a remarkably wide glow. It allows me to stroll into an otherwise pitch black room and not bump into the furniture or the cats. Thomas Edison's perfection of the incandescent bulb a century and a half ago changed our world. It turned night into day, made dingy streets safer, initiated something we call nightlife. Today, the next generation of artificial lighting, the light-emitting diode, or LED, is poised to light up every poorly lit space you can imagine. Small and efficient LEDs can potentially go everywhere, on wallpaper, all over your bicycle. You might even embed them in your contact lenses. But is a brighter world a better one? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and in this episode, we explore the luminous world of artificial lighting. We're now poised to light up every possible thing that isn't already awash in photons. And we do it at a time when astronomers, biologists, and even doctors warn against the harmful effects of light pollution. They call for preserving darkness. More light or more dark? Which is the brighter idea? It's the light stuff. The standard incandescent bulb is a fixture. That's usually in a fixture. It's a familiar technology that's largely unchanged since Thomas Edison bewitched us with its brilliance 135-plus years ago. Dear, it's time to extinguish that oil lamp and toss those waxen candles, for I have brought into our home the electric light bulb. Oh, Charles, you are très moderne. Sydney, take another flash photo. This time I'll do a Lindy swing out. Be sure to get all of my dress. Sure thing, doll. And so it goes. The glow of these bulbs, which is produced by the resistance to an electric current passing through a wire, has been one of the most transformative inventions ever. Sure, the incandescent has had some competition along the way. Other ways of throwing some light on the subject. Ugh, can you turn off that stupid fluorescent... Okay, now I have a headache. Believe it or not, fluorescents aren't such a recent invention. The first one suitable for practical use appeared in the late 1930s. Fluorescent lighting has since gotten traction in offices and industrial settings. But people aren't all that keen to have the humming buzzing and flicker flicker of blue-tinged light in their homes. Most prefer the warm campfire glow of Edison's incandescent bulb. But there's new lighting technology in town, or at least it's entering the city limits. The lighting industry is banking on the light-emitting diode, the LED, as the way forward, leapfrogging the fluorescent and replacing the incandescent, which, by the way, converts only 10% of the energy fed into it into light. The rest just ends up as heat, not efficient. And as a result, the incandescent bulb is being phased out. So we need a replacement technology. Engineer Ian Ferguson of Missouri University of Science and Technology points out the LED's advantages. They're made of semiconductors, which is to say solid-state technology. So a higher percentage of energy is converted into light. No burning filament. (laughs) They're getting better and cheaper on a predictable curve. They haven't replaced all incandescents yet. But as they sweep over the market, Dr. Ferguson says LEDs have the potential to be put everywhere. Ian, an electric light bulb, I mean, it's pretty darn simple. You got a little wire in there, you pass some current to it, it gets hot, and you get some light. Is there any way to tell me how an LED produces light? Yes, there is. An LED 
LCD is made out of semiconductor materials. The place where semiconductor materials are prevalent are in their computers that people are even potentially listening to this program on. The difference with LEDs is that when you pass a current through this piece of semiconductor material, it glows and it produces light. Okay, and and so it's made of semiconductors. Now, those are just, you know, sort of exotic metals that have been, I don't know, contaminated a little bit? I'm not necessarily sure they've been contaminated. People use the word doping, which means that you've taken a piece of semiconductor material and you've modified the conductivity of the material by adding in some purity to the device. The reason why transistors and other things work is this ability to be able to control the conductivity of the device using these particular techniques. So what are the advantages of the LED compared to the classic light bulb? I mean, obviously they take, they take less power to produce the same amount of light and they seem to last longer. Anything else? Yeah, there's many things. Um, so there is the ability to place light where you want it more accurately because these devices are small. They've been incorporated into a number of applications where traditional lighting would not be able to be used. So, for example, in the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., people were able to incorporate very small LEDs into a soffit to to essentially illuminate the text that was there that people couldn't see properly before. One of the early competitors for Edison's incandescent type of light were fluorescent lights, but also these twisty fluorescent lights, things like that. And people don't seem to like them because they're kind of bluish, you know. They don't look very flattering. Uh, What about LEDs? Are they the right color? Yes, and people have worked hard to make LEDs the right color. So you can go into the local hardware store now and you can see light bulbs of different types. Some will mimic an incandescent and that will be a soft white, which has a certain what they call color temperature. So the color temperature that you may see on the packaging is 2,700. When you come and look at these swirly little compact fluorescents that you talked about, the color temperature of those lights are up about 4,000 to 5,000. And you will find that there will be LED lights that can actually operate in that range as well. But people have worked quite hard to produce these soft white lights that look more like incandescents. Now, At the moment, as you've described, we're replacing existing bulbs. When one of the bulbs goes out in my house and it's a 60-watt incandescent, I replace it with an $8 bulb from my local hardware store, and it produces the same amount of light and takes a lot less uh, kilowatt hours to do so, and I don't have to replace it again probably in my lifetime. But I'm not replacing the 100-watt bulbs because they're very expensive. They look unwieldy. I mean, you know, and if I go to the New York subways, I don't see LED bulbs in the sockets there. When when is this all going to happen? You know, you, Seth, for example, are are an early adopter of this technology. You somewhat understand it, somewhat understand its advantages. You can see the need for why you would replace a 60-watt light bulb just now, but not necessarily a 100-watt light bulb. I think if you look at the technology as a whole, I believe the point of insertion is going to be the time that you actually build your building and or renovate your building. So lighting is going to be a thing where we no longer change the light bulb, but it's actually going to be built into the environment. The characteristics of LEDs are different to light bulbs, which in this country is 110 volts. In other countries, it can be 220 volts. LEDs are typically operating at very low voltages, about 3 volts. You won't necessarily need to have these high voltages in your house to provide light. We may be able to go back where the houses now will have low voltages in them, and they're going to be intrinsically safer, safer for your children and safer for other people. No more fun by sticking my fingers into a light bulb socket, though, if it's only 12 volts or 3 volts or something like that. Well, okay, what about new applications? Because the advantages of these new lighting technologies are in some ways quite striking. I mean, you, I don't know, um, thinking wallpaper. I mean, today you have to manufacture an LED. It's a little discrete thing that's built out of lots of parts or whatever. But, you know, could you eventually maybe just print them onto some sort of material and then you could just cover your walls with LEDs and maybe you have red, green, and blue ones. And now, you know, you could just 
connect that to a computer and your wall would turn into a window onto the beach at Waikiki or whatever you wanted it to be. I mean, is, is that all possible? I've tried it myself almost, and there are different types of LEDs. So the first LEDs I talked about and the semiconductor materials that you would see in your computer are what they call inorganic materials. They don't contain carbon. There's a whole series of other LEDs called OLEDs, organic LEDs, which are carbon-based devices. This technology allows you a, almost a roll-to-roll, reel-to-reel printing ability, so you will be able to make, in some sense, LED wallpaper, which can be Waikiki if you want, and or it can bring up and maybe show you being on the moon. I've heard that, that the, some people are thinking about putting LEDs into contact lenses. Uh, is that even practical? And what's the idea? What's the benefit? That's not something I've heard about myself. Um, but there are fads, and you know, very often early adopters and people who have an interest in technology find interesting ways to use technology. But, you know, I was even thinking about this earlier this morning. Somebody I'd spent time with, I said, this person had fire in their eyes. They're still alive. So you can imagine if we actually turned our eyes into LEDs, our eyes could become, in some sense, those small screens so that even when we sleep at night, we can still watch a movie. Gets a whole new meaning to the light of your life. Uh, what about in clothes? I mean, I've occasionally seen, you know, clothes in which they've sort of sewn in LEDs to create some effect or other. But I, I don't know if there's anything practical there, but it is an intriguing idea. It certainly is, although, you know, if you're somewhat concerned about it, if you wear blue clothes and walk around, you might find that an airplane would land on top of you or something <laughs> similar. But... I remember a few years ago, I'd organized a conference in Japan, and the Empress of Japan turned up wearing LED clothing. It was really quite a beautiful gown. But the process of embedding in clothes also means that you can modulate the light, and it may not be apparent to the eye, and then you can be communicating things through that light modulation, and it will give you an opportunity in some sense to communicate with other people. We as individuals using LEDs can then become an ad hoc network where we can be communicating to each other and passing messages from each other without even knowing. Well, finally, Ian, uh, what's the application of this whole new lighting technology that you find most novel or most exciting? Is there any favorite that you have? I think for me, really, the favorite, ultimately, at the end of the day, is this ability to be able to affect physiological changes in people. You'll find that many of us would prefer to be outside rather than being inside. And I think the advent of solid-state lightning is really going to allow us to bring the outdoors inside. And I think that's really going to be the largest impact that this technology will have. It's not necessarily about lighting, but it's about creating environments where people will just do well. Ian Ferguson, thanks so very much for talking with me. You're welcome. Ian Ferguson is Dean of Engineering and Computing at Missouri University of Science and Technology. Now, there's a biological reason why humans prefer incandescent lighting to fluorescence and are also partial to LEDs. The evolution of color vision coming up. Also, we might not be bathing ourselves in any kind of artificial light if it weren't for one 19th century Scottish scientist. James Clark Maxwell, in my estimation and that of many of my colleagues, is perhaps one of the most famous scientists who's ever lived. And I would say that Maxwell is right up there with Einstein. Next, the discovery of just what light is. It's the light stuff on Big Picture Science. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Well, as impressive as LED lighting technology is, if you happen to own a spider monkey, which is not advised because it's not legal, or any other New World primate, ditto for them, the animals would not be impressed by the warm tones of the LED that bathe your living room. They probably wouldn't care. New World primates are those that split from the Old World primates about 50 million years ago and colonized South America. They are dichromatic. They have receptors for two colors, blues and greens, but not reds. There's a reason why humans prefer incandescent lights to fluorescence and why the LEDs may become a hit. They take advantage of biology. Humans and other old world primates evolved to have trichromatic vision, three colors, blue, green, and the warm red. And they're the only ones in the mammalian world to have done so. Color vision, as far as I'm concerned, is the best thing on Earth. If you're a monkey that doesn't have trichromatic color vision and you're on one side of the river and you look across to the other side and you see a banana in a tree and you go, oh, that looks like a nice banana, but I don't know whether it's ripe or not. And so he has to go walk down the river, find some place to cross, walk back up, climb the tree, and ultimately when he gets there, then he might smell the banana and go, oh, it doesn't smell quite ripe, so I wasted all that energy. Whereas if he had color vision, he just looks across the river and he can see whether the banana is ripe or not. Okay, you've sold me. I'll, I'll go for it because I've got it. But now, from a physicist's point of view, color is simply, you know, the spectral distribution of the light bouncing off whatever you're looking at. You know, how much blue, how much green, how much yellow, how much orange, how much red, and so forth. But... Our eyes are only sensitive to three color bands, trichromatic vision. We can only see blue, green, and red, kind of crudely speaking. So how do we see yellow? How do we see that banana? We don't have any yellow receptors, and, and those monkeys didn't either. That is a fantastic question. One thing is we have these three different kinds of cones, but we actually see six different colors. We see black and white, red and green, blue and yellow. So the question is, how do we see six different colors and only have three different kinds of cones? And the answer is, is that there is a code that your brain is basically decoding the pattern of activity from the three different kinds of cones. If all three of the cones are turned on, then we see white. If all three of them are turned off, we see black. And so we get all those colors by basically your brain is looking at ratios of the different kinds of cones. So what you're saying there is that we don't have any yellow receptors, but we do have, for example, uh, red and green receptors. And if the red and green receptors are both uh, getting, if you will, the same amount of light hitting them, we say, well, it's a combination of red and green and, that, and that's yellow, right? I mean, is, is that all there is to it? There's, there's no yellow phosphor on my color TV screen, and yet it can show a banana. Right. It's your brain is actually comparing those two, and it has a special circuit when those are both on that now it's active and you have now the sensation of yellow. So, Except for that, it's exactly as you say. It's as simple <laughs> as when both the red and green ones are on, then we see yellow, but there's no yellow receptor. Okay, so color is in the brain of the beholder. Uh, <laughs> it is. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Now, let, let me get to something else here because our, our color vision undoubtedly is adapted for our lifestyle out there, uh, I guess, on the savannas where we spent most of our time and a lot of daylight and so forth. Sunlight is fairly bluish, right? I mean, when you're out there. But we like campfire light. We like reddish light. In fact, Edison's light bulbs are really very much warmer. That is to say they're more red than, you know, the skylight that you get or, or fluorescence or uh, those kinds of lights. And I just wonder whether, because nighttime was dangerous for our ancestors, that they liked this reddish-colored light simply because that meant they were sitting around a fire and they were safer from whatever predators were out there. I mean, is there some simple explanation for why people don't want fluorescence? They want incandescence because the light is much warmer. It's much more red. Absolutely. First of all, yes, the incandescent lights, they have kind of an amber glow. That's the best way I could describe them. And certainly there's a lot of similarities between a campfire and the light that comes from an Edison light bulb. And there's no doubt about it that we feel when we're in the presence of those warm things, they, they give us a good positive feeling. If we didn't have any color vision at all, this wouldn't make any difference at all. But it's because of our color vision that allows us to recognize, you know, that nice amber color. But 
that same circuitry that kind of dries this deep internal preference for being in the light also is color sensitive. And it is more sensitive to longer wavelengths than it is to shorter wavelengths because that circuit is excited by input from the red and green cones, but it's actually inhibited by input from the blue cones. It's a combination of things that, one, we've evolved, as you say, I'm sure to like can we like the candle lights, the fire that's warm and inviting and safe. All those things are true, but also it's true that even deep inside of us, there are circuitry that's driven us to prefer uh, longer wavelengths lights. Jay, what about fluorescence? Uh, most of my acquaintances are not real keen on fluorescence. Uh, they don't like to <laughs> have them in their makeup lights or whatever. Uh, why is that? Is it because the, 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 the wrong color or they flicker too much or what is it? Well, certainly some people don't like the flicker and then some people are much more sensitive to that than others. But also, I mean, one of the things that makes fluorescence so efficient is because they kind of tune them to the part of the spectrum that we're more sensitive, which is not the longer wavelengths. So the fluorescents tend to be kind of greenish, and they don't have that nice warmth that the incandescents do. LEDs, they're poised to take over. And of course, if you combine, you know, red, green, blue LEDs, you can make any color of light you want. Will that make them uh, a little more acceptable to the populace than those twisty fluorescents, for example? That's what I have in my house is those beautiful, warm LEDs. And the first one that came out, they're kind of bluish and they flickered and it really wasn't nice. But now they have available some things, LED lights that are called warm. They're super efficient, but they have that nice glow that's very similar to the glow, that amber glow of the Edison light bulb. What about the idea, Jay, of having indoor lighting simulate the natural rhythms of daylight? You know, it's a little reddish at the start and the end of the day and blue during the day and stuff like that. Is that merely decorative or would that help our equanimity? Well, I've done experiments on exactly that question in animals. They're hard to do in people, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but we've shown that the circadian rhythms of animals are driven much more naturally if we change the color of the light exactly the way that it changes in the natural world. And as a matter of fact, if you change the color of the light, but don't worry so much about changing the intensity, the animals act in a much more natural way. It's exactly as you say that early in the morning, the light is very warm colors. You know, the sunrise is red and the sunset is red. And then in the middle of the day, even though we think, you know, oh, there's that yellow sun right there, and a lot of the light is coming from that, really most of the light that reaches us in the middle of the day is from the blue sky. It's scattered light, not directly from the sun, and so it's much bluer in the middle of the day. And when we replicated that exactly with a set of different LEDs that changed their intensity throughout the day, and the animals behaved much more like they do in the natural world than they did when we just put them in the light where you had a fluorescent light that turned on and stayed on for 12 hours and then turned off to dark in the nighttime. So yes, I think we'd be much more natural and happy if the lights changed in color like they do in the natural world. Sounds like there's a new day dawning, as it were, at least the light from a new day dawning. <laughs> Jay Knights, thank you so very much for speaking with us. It's my pleasure. Jay Knights is a professor of ophthalmology at the University of Washington. You know that experiment where he was testing the effects on the animals of the color of the room, changing the color as the day would change. I wondered which kind of animals he was working with, because if he was working with animals who are dichromatic, they wouldn't see that change throughout the day. That's right. Like New World monkeys, for example, only have receptors for the blue and the green. Although they would notice a difference as the light shifted to the red. They wouldn't see it as red, but they would notice that there was more green and less blue, but it might not be a very big effect. We wondered which animals Dr. Knights worked with, so we wrote him for a follow-up, and he said he worked with fish. And that is because fish have cone photoreceptors that are sensitive to long wavelengths, and red is a long wavelength. And fish are particularly good animals for these experiments. Do you know why? Uh, you can keep them in a tank? I don't know. Um, well, they don't shut their eyes, and so they're continuously exposed to this ambient illumination. And um, at any rate, the fish were the ones reacting to the changing light throughout the day. 
Well, so it turns out that LEDs may be as easy on our eyes and on fish eyes as incandescent but they're more versatile. They sure are, and they also last an incredibly long time, and they take a lot less energy. Hey, are you getting a cut from the LED industry? Well, I haven't noticed any, no, but I really do like these LED bulbs, i got to say. you sound like a fan. I am. And while Dr. Knights just described how our eyes perceive color, only in the last century and a half were physicists able to actually understand the true nature of light, including color, of course. Edison and his predecessors were inventors and first-rate tinkerers. They understood that passing an electric current through a wire could make it glow, but they didn't really understand what that glow, that light, was. That was figured out by an extraordinarily gifted Scottish scientist, James Clark Maxwell, about a dozen years before a light bulb ever lit up a Victorian living room. He identified for the first time that electricity, magnetism, and light were all part of the same phenomenon. The year 2015 is the International Year of Light, and it's also the 150th anniversary of Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light, which he eloquently summarized in four mathematical equations. It may be hard to grasp the significance of these four short formulas until you let it sink in that they underpin almost all technology in the modern world. Technology that ultimately defines the modern world. Radios, radar, television, solar panels, video games, mobile phones, even security scanners. Any gadget that makes use of electromagnetic waves. You listen to programming brought to you on radio waves, the long waves on one end of the electromagnetic spectrum. Shorter waves, visible light. Shorter still, gamma rays. Maxwell's physical and mathematical insights underpin all practical use of the electromagnetic spectrum. Thus, he is argued by some to be a father, if not the father, of modern physics. That's the case made by gravitational astrophysicist and cosmologist Martin Hendry of the University of Glasgow. James Clark Maxwell, in my estimation and that of many of my colleagues, is perhaps one of the most famous scientists who's ever lived. But the surprising thing is how little well he's known outside the world of physics. And indeed, we all have heard of Einstein and Newton. And I would say that Maxwell is right up there with Einstein. Perhaps you could think of him as Scotland's forgotten Einstein. Can you tell me something about his background? I mean, what was his family like? Where did he go to school? That kind of thing? Sure. Um, So he was born in Edinburgh in 1831. And he um, lived there for a few years, but then he moved to the Scottish borders, sort of outside of the city, to a very rural environment. And um, his mother died when he was quite young. Um, and his father you know, looked after him really well. He was keen for him to go to the best schools around, one of which was a, an academy in Edinburgh. But because he'd been growing up in a rural environment, um, he wasn't really taken very seriously at first by those inner city kids in the the academy in Edinburgh and they used to make fun of him because of his rather strange accent and in fact they they called him dafty you know describing him as a you know essentially as a fool and the boy was he made to make them eat their words and by the end of his life and but basically it's because a little bit like we, we hear about Einstein that I think he wasn't someone who necessarily um, responded well to the standard educational methods of the time. He didn't just learn things by rote. He liked to understand things much more deeply than that. So, in fact, um, once he really got into studying subjects like mathematics, where his creativity and his ability to think deeply about problems really could find its level, then he quickly was recognised as one of the real outstanding talents in the school. Well, Maxwell worked in many areas of science, but of course his biggest breakthrough was the formulation of the theory of electromagnetism. Now, you know, there were guys before him, uh, guys like Ampere, Volta, even Mm -hmm. Ben Franklin, and of course Michael Faraday. Michael Faraday, sure. They were all playing around with electricity and magnetism. What was the status of our understanding of these mysterious forces, electricity and magnetism, as the Civil War broke out in the U.S.? Sure, but I see Faraday in particular from a sort of British perspective had done some really groundbreaking work to establish the empirical basis for certain laws that tell you about how sources of electricity and magnetism will behave and how they will affect their environment. But really what 
Maxwell did that was notable and different was to provide a unified mathematical structure to understand just how electricity and magnetism fitted together. You could think of them really like two sides of the same coin. Or as I like to put it, if we associate electricity with static charges and magnetism with moving charges, then what Maxwell was able to do was to sort of join the dots to help us understand how changes in an electric field, changes in the distribution of static charges, could produce or induce a magnetic field and vice versa. What Maxwell was doing was thinking about the influence of electricity and magnetism, not in terms of localised phenomena, but in terms of um, the effect that they could have on their surroundings, sort of being transmitted, if you like, via this abstract concept of a field. Now, he was doing this when we knew enough about electricity and magnetism to, to build some practical apparatuses. I mean, the telegraph already existed, right? That's right. Yep, that's right. Um, but I guess... What he was doing was paving the way for many more practical applications that would involve a deeper insight into what electricity and magnetism truly were. And that was the key idea that Maxwell brought to the table because he was able to establish this mathematical framework for where electricity and magnetism comes from. And, and fundamentally, what that led him to was to spot a quite remarkable connection. And the connection was between electricity and magnetism and light because he came to realise that light is produced when you have changing electric and magnetic fields. So as I said a moment ago, even the idea of the field was quite revolutionary. The idea that you could have this um, structure um, embedded within space and um, that can allow the effects of electricity and magnetism to propagate from one place to another. So that begs the question, well, how fast do they propagate? At, at what speed? does the influence of electricity and magnetism spread out through space? And what Maxwell was able to show was that if you have a changing electric and magnetic field, then it will produce waves. The speed at which those waves spread out through the universe was almost identical with the, the speed of light. So he concluded from that that light was in fact an electromagnetic wave. So that opened the way to understanding that it wasn't just the visible light that our eyes can see, but also the various types of light all across the electromagnetic spectrum. This would open the way to understanding all those different sorts of electromagnetic radiation, which now underpins so much of the technology in our modern world. It's remarkable, too, that all this insight was distilled into four fairly compact equations. These are sure. not, not known by the general public so much, yeah. but if you take freshman physics or mm -hmm. sophomore physics, you'll you'll get to learn them. And they all fit on the back of a T-shirt. And, and there indeed. it is. All electricity and magnetism, everything you need to create televisions, radios, mobile phones, it's all in those four rather simple-looking equations. Yep. That, that's right. And, and there's a, a wonderful symmetry to those equations. Uh, again, you don't need to understand in detail what the mathematics means to appreciate that what you've got is symbols representing electricity and symbols representing magnetism. And what you see is that everywhere where electricity appears on the left-hand side of an equation, there's an analogous equation where magnetism appears on the left and the same with the appearance on the right-hand side. So it's just a beautiful... Um, representation of this idea that electric fields can be used to induce magnetic fields and vice versa. How is uh, James Clark Maxwell remembered in his home city of Edinburgh there? Is, is, is well, he a household name or not? Um, that's a good question. The Royal Society of Edinburgh um, commissioned a number of years ago um, a statue in uh, Clark Maxwell's honour so slowly but surely, we're trying to get the word out there that, that Maxwell was this very important historical figure. But really, um, I'd imagine just a handful of people would know who he was and what he did. Well, finally, let me elaborate on that a little bit more, because indeed, if you walked around the streets here, and this is mm. the Silicon Valley where, where sure. science is held in high esteem, and ask the people you came across to name the most famous scientists of all time, uh, undoubtedly... And many of them would name Galileo, perhaps Kepler, Newton, Einstein, Stephen Hawking. But mm -hmm. almost never would I expect to hear someone mention Maxwell. Is that ever going to change? Well, we certainly hope it will. I think the reasons for it are interesting. It's perhaps because he died young. 
also because his discoveries were so innovative at the time that it took several decades before they were fully appreciated. And then thirdly, he was also rather self-deprecating. He wasn't a pushy character. He was once asked to give a review of theories of electromagnetism, and in fact, he never even mentioned his own one. So, you know, that's an example of where perhaps some modern scientists are are, are rather less uh, reluctant to self-promote. But nonetheless, I think all we can do now so many years after he died, is try to make people appreciate how much his discoveries underpin the technology in our modern world. And that's one of the things we're seeking to do with International Year of Light, marking 150 years since his great discoveries. Martin Hendry, thanks so very much for a very enlightening conversation. (laughs) Thank you. Martin Hendry is a professor of gravitational astrophysics and cosmology at the University of Glasgow. It strikes me that, uh, you know, James Clark Maxwell, who's really only known to people who've taken sophomore physics. I mean, this guy was such a brilliant guy to realize the deep connection between electricity, you know, when you comb your cat and the hair stands on end, and lodestones, you know, magnets. That was fantastic. But he also not only connected them, but he predicted the speed of light. And that immediately raised a big question, speed of light relative to what? Where do you measure it against? And it was Einstein who realized there was something very deep about that, and that led to relativity. So Einstein was influenced by Maxwell. Extraordinarily so. Have you noticed that there were two Scots in the show about light? Of course, Martin Henry, but also Ian Ferguson. Yeah, but on the other hand, we're talking about uh, 19th century developments in science. There was the Scottish Enlightenment, and uh, the Scots did an awful lot of stuff, including inventing the railroad. Well, we've done a pretty remarkable job of harnessing the power of photons, largely thanks to Maxwell's equations. And surely one of the most important applications is artificial lighting. The incandescent bulb has had a lengthy run of 135 plus years, and the LED has the potential to extend the reach of artificial light to every last dingy corner of the world. But is it too much of a good thing? Astronomers and biologists who study the effects of light pollution think it might be. The case for preserving darkness next. It's The Light Stuff on Big Picture Science. the last time that you saw a starry night sky? When I look up at a truly dark sky, I see so many stars that I'm briefly disoriented. It's hard to tell which direction is down versus up. It's hard to tell whether your feet are on the ground or you're somewhere floating in that sea of stars. He'd like all of us to have that experience more often. I'm John Berentine, Program Manager at the International Dark Sky Association. The International Dark Sky Association is a nonprofit that works to stop light pollution and protect the visibility of the night skies, all while maintaining the march of progress set in motion by Maxwell, Edison, and others. John, just to give some idea of what's changed about our planet, if you will, in the last 150 years, if you look at the Earth from space and you're looking at the night side, not the part lit up by the sun, Uh, It's still pretty much illuminated. Where's all that light coming from? The light that we see on the nighttime side of the Earth is a combination of some natural sources, but also many sources that are attributable to people. So if you were, for example, on the International Space Station looking down at the Earth at night through one of the windows, you would see the glow of the aurora across the polar regions of the Earth very faintly. You would see light from storms in equatorial Africa and the tropics. You would see light from fishing vessels in the Sea of Japan and other parts of the the ocean off of the coast of um, China and Southeast Asia. You would see the glow of cities outlining the continents across the world. And every one of those little dots of light that's persistent 
is caused by people. And that's everything from streetlights to light escaping out of the windows of buildings and homes. There's light due to the production of oil and gas, flares. There's a variety of sources, and you would see all of these things, many of which were not even there barely a century ago. Well, when I think of places that are particularly bright, at least in the luminance sense, I think of places like Las Vegas, for example. But, but it's not just the big cities that are doing this. No, not at all. It's down to pretty much every mid to even small size city, at least in the United States. And most of the cities are doing it because of the savings in energy. And so it's lowering their costs in order to provide basic services for their communities. But we're not even concerned entirely about what's happening here. Now we're having to worry about the rise of that tendency to light across the developed world and parts of the world where they've never had street light systems before. And the price of LEDs coming down and the lowered energy consumption that they bring with them is really accelerating that. So, of course, that's something that we're very concerned about right now. When you talk about light pollution, and it's a common term, Pollution implies something that, you know, it's kind of a waste product. It isn't something you really want. It just sort of came with whatever activity you were doing. Uh, How do you apply the term light pollution to the light that, you know, is coming from our cities? I mean, a lot of it is automobile headlights. Uh, Maybe that's not pollution. Maybe that's just necessary lighting. That's the right way to think about it in the sense that uh, the same way that for water and air pollution, we define thresholds where we say if you're above so many parts per million of the pollutant, then you're into the pollution territory. And the same goes with light. But much of our light is simply wasted in the sense that it's not directed properly towards the ground. It goes up into the sky. It lights up the sky. That's the part that I would differentiate as true light pollution and ultimately waste. So again, it ties into the theme that there are good reasons to light, and we should think very intelligently about how we do it. But in the cases where we're not thinking about it very well and we're putting light out there for its own sake, that's where I think we cross over into a regime where we could very legitimately refer to it as pollution. Let's talk about one area where pollution, light pollution in any case, has an obvious effect, and that's astronomy. Is it true, John, that when Los Angeles suffered a power outage in 1994 because of an earthquake, residents were calling the local emergency centers to report a strange, giant, silvery cloud in the sky? What was going on there? That's a true story, Seth. That developed out of the Northridge earthquake in 1994 that pulled power lines down and knocked out power to a good part of the Los Angeles area. And for the first time, probably in decades, the sky became dark enough due to the absence of sky glow for people to see the Milky Way. And for many of them having grown up in the LA area and never having experienced that before, it was a very strange and disorienting thing. And it literally did generate some calls to emergency services and to Griffith Observatory in LA and people wondered what was going on. And to me, that story symbolizes this disconnect that now exists between many city dwellers and the night sky of little more than a century ago that once everybody had access to but has been largely taken away from us. Well, that prompts me to ask, I mean, what fraction of the world's population today can easily see the Milky Way from wherever they are? It's hard to make really good, reliable estimates of that number, and I've seen different fractions thrown out there, but I believe it's certainly more than half of the world's population just looking at the number of them that live in cities throughout the world. And so I think rather conservatively, we could say that probably about half the world's population has never had that experience of seeing the Milky Way. You know, a century or more ago, when a university, some other organization was building an observatory, you know, with a telescope and a dome, all the usual accoutrements, they would put these things downtown. But today, observatories, even if they're on, you know, mountaintops, what seem to be far away from from cities are still having trouble. How serious is this? Is there really an effect on astronomy research due to light pollution? I would argue that there's a strong effect on astronomy research from light pollution, and it has to do with restricting the places and times in which we can do that research. And one reaction to that that you'll sometimes hear is people will say, well, we have a space telescope. Why do we need to worry about that? And we can certainly go to space where we can get above not only the lights on the ground, but the Earth's atmosphere. But of course, going to space is very expensive, and we can build relatively few of those facilities at very great cost. So the availability to astronomers is much more limited than having a well-organized network of telescopes on the ground. 
But the light pollution influence has driven astronomy out of some of the better places in the continental United States and pushed us to places like Hawaii, but even Hawaii is now under threat. Sometimes we have local governments that are very supportive and enact good laws to help control the light pollution, but even the best of circumstances in terms of policy seems unable to overcome the growth of light that's just due to the increase in population. Darkness isn't just important so that we can see the cosmos, but biologists have discovered that it's crucial to our health and that of other animals. Tell me how artificial light could throw off an animal or even a plant's uh, lifestyle. It's true that artificial light at night affects both plants and animals, and of course, humans are animals, so I include us in that grouping. We all have a common evolutionary history or background, and it appears that the sensitivity to the day-night cycle that's established by the rising and setting of the sun is something that evolved very early in the history of biology on the Earth. So going back to a time before there was a distinction between plants and animals, Specifically, what's going on when there's exposure to light during hours of the day that the body is not expecting it, in other words, when the sun is down, has to do with the regulation of certain chemical signaling pathways in the body. Some of your listeners may have heard of a chemical called melatonin that's been implicated in the quality of sleep. And we know that exposure to light of certain colors at certain times of the day can disrupt the production of that chemical and can cause not only problems with sleep, but it's also been implicated in the incidence of certain kinds of chronic disease. And I think that we're just sort of on the edge right now of really fully understanding what all of the possible results of that are. Light pollution also famously kills birds, seems to disrupt their migratory patterns. They leave either too early or too late for wherever they're going. And a recent study has shown that bats are also damaged by the loss of darkness. Uh, uh, is, it, is this something that I might notice right here in my own backyard? Well, that's right, Seth. It's already noted that certain animal species are in decline in urban areas in particular, and we don't fully understand why that is, but everything from air and water pollution has been implicated in that. But also, we've observed changes in the distribution of species when lights are introduced into certain areas. And it's not just that it causes birds to become disoriented, which is true, but it also confers either advantages or disadvantages to different species in terms of their feeding strategies. So, you know, some of your listeners may be familiar with the seeing a spider web underneath an outdoor light at night because the spiders know that the insects are going to be attracted to that light and they'll gain an advantage if they wait around for their meal to come to them. But what does that do to the broader food web among animals and plants that are in the urban environment. And again, that's something we don't know much about yet, but the early indications are adding light to spaces that were previously dark for literally billions of years is having a disruptive effect, and we don't entirely understand the consequences of that. The brightest places around the planet, I mean, there are the obvious ones like New York City, uh, some that are perhaps less obvious, like the burn-off uh, flames at uh, refineries and so forth. John, what are the darkest places on Earth? To find the darkest places in the world, you really have to go far from where people are, ultimately. You have to go to places that are either largely uninhabitable or are unable to support human populations because there's a, a lack of industry, there's a lack of natural resources, et cetera. Places like um, the middle of the Sahara Desert in Africa would be a very dark place to visit. The Tibetan Plateau in Central Asia, um, broad parts of Siberia, the interior Amazon basin in South America. There are plenty of parts of the world that remain dark, but they're only dark because we can't really sustain a population of human beings there. Do you really see any hope for progress on this problem? Because I truly ask myself if we're going to really have any success in railing against the dying of the night. Hope springs eternal, Seth. It's, you know, if it weren't the case, I wouldn't be in the, the field that I am. And I think it's a problem that can be solved. I think the solutions are very simple. I think it may take decades for us to get to the point where we've really made a strong dent in this. But I really, truly believe in a future where we're using light much more intelligently. We're only using it when and where we need it. And it's improving safety and security and human well-being as a result. 
we can't totally separate out light from human development. We know that that has to be part of the equation. But I think that by doing it more intelligently, we'll ultimately get a better result. Going to the dark side. John Barentine, thank you very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Seth. John Barentine is the program manager of the International Dark Sky Association. Well, you know, in the 1870s, the way we illuminated the world changed, and the world changed. And it looks to me like that's going to happen again. But the question is, is it for the better? As John Barentine says, we need to be illuminating the world in smart ways and economical ways. Right, but we can do that. We just have to make street lamps, for example, that don't put all that light up into the sky. I mean, we can do these sorts of things. And, you know, I come into work in the morning and I see all the bicyclists have their taillights on, even in the daylight. That's the LED. And that saves lives. I mean, that's just one tiny example of everything that's coming down the pipe. Well, thank you to the luminous talent that helped produce this show, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David, Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to the light stuff. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you'll find more episodes on our archive at bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer listening to over-the-air radio because you're a direct descendant of James Clark Maxwell or wear his equations on your t-shirt, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on the list, consider letting them know you like the show. And do you have a comment, a criticism, or a suggestion? Well, throw in some faint praise and then email it all to bigpicturescience at SETI.org. Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.